0: I was going to um, try to uh, do an overview of what we've um, discussed earlier in the retreat and move on to the last of the qualities known as the Brahm Vihars, which is equanimity. And it's funny because in some systems of... Buddhist thought in uh, certain Tibetan schools, one begins with equanimity actually since it so much is the, I think of it often as the kind of secret ingredient threaded throughout the other Brahma Vihara. so even if it's not named, even if it's not articulated, even if it's not voiced in an explicit way, it's definitely infusing all of our practice in this system Uh, Classically, one does it in the order that we've been doing it, and you start with loving kindness and and move on with a kind of culmination in equanimity. But it's also very common for people to have a background in some amount of mindfulness practice, or if not practice, at least um, understanding, some comprehension of the nature of mindfulness, which uh, is also about equanimity. Even before you go on to do loving kindness practice. So, inevitably, it's there. So, you know, once again, in review, the word Brahma means um, supreme or celestial or heavenly. And one translation of it I do like a lot is the word best. Vihara means dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities are said to form our best home. And like any home, certainly we may not be there all the time. But when we get back there, it should be the place where we feel most ourselves, most authentic, least pretentious, most whole, we're home. And so these four qualities are said to form our best home loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And I don't know how much we've gone into this during the course of the retreat, but in the classic model in the Buddhist psychology, um, I know Mark talked about this a little bit, uh, each of these qualities is said to have what they usually call a far enemy and a near enemy. I can't pronounce adversary the way Mark did, but it was really cute. <laughs> it was different. <laughs> He's not from New York. <laughs> and I am. <laughs> um, so I'll just say enemy. Uh, the far enemy is the clear opposite. You would never, ever confuse that state for the Brahma Vihara state. The near enemy is close enough so that even though... Essentially, it is tremendously different. It takes some real degree of discernment and intelligence and awareness to know that difference because it's so close on the surface that we could e- easily get confused. That state of the near enemy could easily masquerade as the brahmavihara. vihara So um, loving-kindness is the first, or metta, meaning... A very deep, it's like a bone-deep acknowledgement of connection, having nothing necessarily to do with liking somebody or approving of them, certainly. But it's knowing so strongly that it really is not a question of us and them or self and other, but that there is a we-ness involved. In life, in going forward, in success, in resolution, that this is really the nature of things, and it is so interesting you know to understand that uh, from a scientific point of view, we see this from you know something that has no completely secular point of view, we see this, and so Uh, You know, we're not talking about trying to have kind of fanciful construct about life that makes us feel good but is completely unreal. But rather seeing into the nature of things to understand this truth of of interconnection. I was telling somebody that um, I live here, of course, and I also have a very small apartment in New York City that I sublet, so uh, as many of you know. And sometimes, like, I go into that building. It's a large building, you know, hundreds of people living there. I go up in the elevator, and I get off on my floor, and I think, I hope nobody smokes in bed anymore, you know? Because you think, my life is completely dependent on the behavior and the actions of other people. Or sometimes even just driving um, to anywhere, you know, down a, a big highway or something where you get to a, a toll booth and then you wait for that electronic thing to go up with your easy pass. And some of the I sit there in the car and I think, what if it doesn't go up? <laughs> you know, how much is dependent on things working just so? And what might be the ramifications of that little thing not going up in the air to the people behind me and the people who are expecting them? And then it's just like, that's the nature of things. So, you know, loving kindness isn't something like really gooey um, and sentimental, but uh, it's empowered because it's true. It's the truthfulness of it that really gives it its strength, that we are connected in these ways. And the far enemy of, of metta is aversion, which encapsulates both anger and fear. Uh, And often in the Buddhist psychology, anger and fear are talked about as being the same mind state with different manifestations. (laughs) Anger being the expressive, outflowing, energized form. Fear being the held-in, imploding, frozen form of striking out against what's happening, wanting to declare it to be untrue, wanting to deny it, to separate from it. And... It's interesting because even in the Buddhist psychology, when they talk about a state like anger, it, it isn't you know, condemned as evil or, or terrible or you know, hideous. And, and we're not considered terrible people because we feel it. But when we act from it, which is a different thing than feeling it, then it's consequential because anger has a certain nature. Um, They say in the Buddhist psychology that anger is like a forest fire which burns up its own support, which can leave us devastated. And like a fire, it may leave us very far from where we want to be. And yet they're they're very positive attributes that are acknowledged. It's energy. Uh, It can be clarity. It's a way of saying no, of having limits, of Really, not being passive, not being complacent. Sometimes it's a real source of truth telling. You know, sometimes we've probably all been in situations in all kinds of different arenas of life where it's the angry person in the room who's willing to say, hey, that's wrong. Whereas everyone else is kind of looking the other way, you know, and talking about something else. And they go, hey, let's look at that. But it's devastating at the same time it's devastating to the host it can't be sustained necessarily for a sustained effort toward change and also is imbued with a lot of delusion really like if you think about the last time you were really really angry at yourself i don't know how far back you have to think but you know really angry at yourself you know and as you recollect that moment, that feeling, that the nature of that, it's very unlikely in that intense anger you had any perspective on yourself, right? And so, too, it is with, you know, we we lose sight of options when we're afraid, when we're angry. The world gets very, very small. And so there may be avenues, they may be paths, they may be efforts that we can't even imagine in that, in the grip of that kind of tunnel vision, I'm all bad, or this situation, you know, can never be, can never be changed. And so we would never really confuse the presence of loving kindness, the openness, the Um, the sense of connection to that kind of alienation, that pushing away of anger. And yet we want to utilize the energy of it, which actually is a form of compassion, just that energy to speak the truth, to seek change. Um, But the near enemy of loving kindness is attachment. It's what a friend of mine once called meta with an edge. You know, and it would be very likely that you've spent some amount of time in this retreat exactly there. You know, it came up in the questions. It always comes up. May you be happy by Sunday. You know, or people tell me when I see them, Boston or New York, you know, like, hey, I did that Meta retreat up in Barry in February. And I had this one friend, and I... They were my person, you know, I really offered them all this meta for the week, and then I saw them when I came back, and they were no better, <laughs> you know, and I thought, "Hey, I gave you a week, you know, why aren't you better?" I will love myself as long as I never disappoint myself. I love you, and this is how you can really make me happy about the fact that I love you it's because <laughs> You know, so both attachment and aversion have a lot to do with our effort to control what is ultimately uncontrollable. No matter how we push away, we can't make that unpleasant or painful thing not have happened. And no matter how much we blame ourselves for the arising of that painful emotion or situation or physical sensation, it's not actually in our hands to make it not happen. And with attachment, too, of course. You know, we think, if I only hold on a little tighter, then they won't change. It won't change. The seasons won't change. And this is, you know, this is the, like, repetitive pattern of suffering we tend to fall into. The Buddha said it really, really cogently when he said, you know, someone who holds on really tightly to that which is inevitably going to change is like someone who's holding on tightly to a revolving wheel. At some point or another in the cycle, you're going to get run over. But we hold on even tighter rather than realizing there's another way of, of relating. So working with this feeling of attachment doesn't mean we give up caring. You know, we don't try to get things done. We have no effort. We have no um, aspiration. In some ways, we probably need bigger aspiration. You know, we need a, a much more daring sense of imagination about where happiness is to be found, for example, rather than clinging to the little things that we cling to, you know, only to find them constantly changing. So we're challenged by this. You know, it's so close to that sense of loving kindness, but it's got all this other stuff, you know, clinging, grasping, wanting to be in control and that makes it really very different. And the liberation for us is in, in deepening our knowledge and our confidence in loving kindness so that we can feel at home there. You know, we don't feel we're giving up strength and that we're um, just getting passive or inert and that we don't care as we abide more and more as we dwell more and more in loving kindness. And then there's compassion, the trembling or the quivering of our heart hearts in response to seeing pain or suffering. It begins of course with seeing pain as pain. You know, and this is what we've been talking about when it's our own fear and anger and attachment and greed and jealousy. You know, do we call them bad and wrong and weak or terrible or do we see them as states of suffering can we see pain as pain that's a really very profound and important question as we look at ourselves and as we look outside of ourselves and I think of compassion in a certain way Um, and it's something I think about a lot you know so I'm just kind of uh, formulating it in in my thoughts and so I, I think of it sort of as a progression in a certain way, because it's not just seeing pain as pain that gives rise to the sense of compassion. I think there are a lot of intermediate steps as well. It's like a flowering or an unfolding. So the first stage, you know, uh, seems to be a kind of um, empathy, like a resonance with someone who's in pain or suffering, but before that, there's the foundation of being able to feel and be honest about and um, be able to support awareness of our own pain because that's how the empathy will arise. And it's also in, in Buddhist teaching, that's also how the best kind of ethics arise you know, rather than a long list of do's and don'ts, although we have that as well, um, there's that kind of sensitivity. It's just that remembrance, like, oh, I remember what it felt like when that person lied to me. You know, I remember how unseen I felt, how how hurt I felt. And I don't really want to do that to this other person. No, I don't want to lie because I know what it tends to feel like when someone lies to me. And so it's not like an absolute imputation. Well, they must be feeling exactly what I would feel. But there is a kind of knowing that this is like human nature. You know, it hurts. And we don't want to do that to somebody else. And so we get in touch with our own painful feeling. And even though it feels like a miserable thing to do, it's not unimportant, it's actually very important because that's how we build those bridges to others. And that's how we can have these kinds of ethics and also that kind of empathy. We, we can kind of sense what it might feel like to feel like you're on the edge or you're all alone or whatever it is. But then I think there's there are several more steps after empathy. Because one might feel into the pain of somebody else and be frightened by that and think, I think I'll just go away, you know, and do something else. Or we might feel into the pain of somebody and be outraged by it and blame them. That happens a lot. Or we might feel into the pain of somebody and feel overwhelmed by it. Or we might feel into the pain of somebody and want to fix it, but in almost a kind of manipulative way. Like, I'd really like to be the one to make this all okay. Um, And I was also... uh, You know, it's, it's complicated because compassion has elements of wanting to help, wanting to serve, wanting to try to alleviate the suffering. But it's not really because we feel helpless and we can't bear to feel helpless. It's not really because we want to be the ones who save the day. Um, It's not really because we need to get control over a situation that we feel is spinning outside of our control, but it's, it's really out of the nature of compassion, so it's different. And all these other reactions are very common. We have them all of the time. And they, I think, can be really distinguished from the compassionate response. So that's how I think of it these days, is the compassionate response as a particular response to that knowing, that deep knowing of of suffering. So what happens in there? You know, that's very interesting. And I'll get back to that when I talk about equanimity. So the far enemy of compassion is cruelty. To have such a distinct sense of otherness that what happens to that person, that being, that creature doesn't matter because they are the other—it's cruelty. And the near enemy is sometimes described as pity, as it was here. It's sometimes described um, as this state of overwhelm. I mean the. Translation is often uh, grief or sorrow. It's a little confusing. It doesn't mean grief or sorrow in the Western psychological sense in which we use the words. It really means being kind of broken, overcome, exhausted by the pain that we encounter. And it's easy to see how that could be the near enemy. It seems like it's the response of compassion, but I think it's really something essentially different. With all of these qualities, certainly the first three of loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy, as I've been saying, I see them as um, attributes of generosity. It's like generosity of the heart, even if it's not material generosity, it's generosity of the spirit. And like material generosity as well, there needs to be some sense of inner abundance in order to give if you feel completely depleted, if you feel exhausted, if you feel overcome, if you feel you don't have nearly enough, no matter how much you might have, then there isn't that same kind of sense that, oh, I can give, I can share. You know, they actually say that when the Buddha began teaching lay people, when he wasn't teaching monastics, he was teaching lay people, he would always start with generosity as the foundational teaching, because as he put it, everyone has something to give, even if it's a smile, even if it's paying attention to somebody. Um, Everybody has something to give. And the act of giving is so joyous because, for one reason, it reunites us with a sense of inner abundance. We realize, oh, I have something to give, or there is within me this kind of ability to give. So that sense of inner abundance is also replenishment. It's renewal. It's resiliency. These are all like at the root of the compassionate response. And so it's clear from that point of view, you know, if we're devastated, we're not... Going to find it so easy to get so in touch with that wellspring within us that can allow us even to be present, which is a form of generosity. And that's compassion. It's why, um, you know, compassion isn't the same as like feeling bad about a situation, just as it's not the same as trying to get some kind of ultimate control over a situation. I was talking to somebody about um, going to visit Ramdas not too long after he'd had um, that major stroke. and you know, his doctors thought he would die and he didn't die, and then he was getting better. And uh, he was home. So it was very soon after he got home, he was living in California at the time, and I went to see him, and it was really very beautiful in a way. It was quite extraordinary because his living room. Was piled high with all of these things that people had sent, you know, herbal remedies and that kind of remedy and that kind of remedy and that kind of remedy. It was very beautiful, but sometimes, in terms of the message that came with it, I felt at any rate there was a kind of pressure like, use this and you'll be walking in two weeks. Definitely, you know. I was like, well, you know. And, you know, there was just a kind of pressure. The day that I was there, this bottle of Ganges water arrived, the water from the Ganges River, and it said, you know, the note said like, take five drops of this a day and you'll definitely be walking again. And I said, don't drink that. <laughs> you know, you'll get cholera if you drink that. Don't drink that, you know. You know, so it was beautiful, but it was also, it was maybe not so free flowing, you know. In terms of the generous heart, you know that compassionate response. You know, so we we go to lots of different places in the face of pain. Sometimes it's way too much; it's just overwhelming. We really don't have that sense we can be present. Sometimes uh, we're present, but it's sort of with that extra thing, you know, of wanting to be in control. And one of the things that happens in the ongoing course of the practice the meditation practice is that we feel all of these things we find our way through you know all these different reactions will inevitably come up we experience them we kind of come back home to this place of compassion and then we leave it again and we get lost in some other reaction it just happens that way and then we come back and over time we really do have that sense of being able to abide in that place. And some of it really might involve um, you know, not being a- able to just be present fully, completely, always, at all times, without ever taking a break from a state of suffering. It's just not going to be realistic. And I actually learned that in a very, um, one of the things I love about meditation practice actually, is that the really big life lessons sometimes happen in these itty-bitty little packages. You know, so, like, if you left here and saw a friend and they said, what'd you do on the first day? And you said, oh, I felt a few breaths, my mind wandered, and I brought it back. We'd be like, huh? You know? That sounds really great, you know? But that's a very big thing, you know, to forgive ourselves, to be able to be present when we have to start over, not to judge ourselves for 7,000 hours because our minds wandered. That's a very big thing, and we take it into life. It's not just for here. It's about beginning again. It's about renewal. It's about being able to make mistakes and start over, losing sight of our aspiration and being able to start over That's really the life lesson that we're we're learning. So it's the same thing, you know, when you're working with painful feeling in the meditation hall, you know, and um, the instruction, you know, as we've talked about, is sometimes it's not right to just be with it and be with it and be with it and be with it and be with it until you fall over, you know, but be with the pain for a little bit Move your attention to something it's easier to be with. Get that sense of upliftment or renewal. Then you come back, and then you leave it again. And then you come back. It's not a cop-out, it's wisdom. Because ultimately, within the Buddhist teaching, suffering is not redemptive. The point is not to suffer. We don't get ennobled by suffering, in fact. Everything is about how we relate to that suffering. Because we may relate to that suffering with a huge compassionate heart and a a tremendous sense of connection and care for others, or we might relate to that suffering very differently. You know, that will just have us spiral down. So that's really what we come to. And we always need to remember, I think, that compassion has that kind of sense of upliftment or resiliency or renewal just from the force of connection and care. It reminds me of you know the story I often tell about the Dalai Lama coming to New York City uh, some years ago. It wasn't the most recent time he spoke in Central Park, but the, the first time he spoke in Central Park. And there were an estimated 250,000 people there um, and I'd gotten up quite early that morning and walked to the park. And I couldn't see anything, but I could hear the sound of Tibetan monks chanting in the distance. So I sort of followed the sound. And I you know, went through the park and came to the meadow where he was going to be speaking. And it was like everywhere the eye could land, there were people. <laughs> there were so many people. And we waited for him to come in a very it felt like a very special kind of silence. And then when he finally came and began speaking, he started with something I found sort of startling, um, which was when he said, from a certain point of view, I haven't had such an easy life. He said, I've had to, I had to go into exile um, in my early 20s. I've had to try you know, daily to keep an exile community intact i've had to daily hear about the terrible suffering going on inside of tibet he said it hasn't been such an easy life and then he said but i'm pretty happy <laughs> you know just like that and, and of course one does see that in him right i'm pretty happy and he went on to say the reason that i'm pretty happy even though it hasn't been such an easy life is because of the force of compassion compassion makes me feel at one with everyone You just think, you know, it reminds me of another thing he said that he's so famous for when he said, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. Imagine how happy we would be for a day if we were like that, you know, instead of like so defended and wanting to impress people. And really, you know, when we meet people, by and large, we can be pretty self-absorbed. You know, we hardly even notice them, actually. It's all like, what do they think of me? Right? And so we are so consumed by that that we feel so alone, so restricted, and so untrue, so inauthentic. Imagine, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. We'd be pretty happy, too. And there's the path. And it was so remarkable sitting there in that crowd of maybe like 250,000 people when he said that, because I would bet that an awful lot of us might have been able to say it hasn't been such an easy life. And maybe not so very many of us could have then said, but I'm pretty happy. <laughs> you know. So not only is it a path, it's an invitation. It's a possibility that is genuine. It's true. It's not just for special people, other people. It's really available for us. So this is, this is our work. And then there's the quality of sympathetic joy, having actual happiness in the happiness of others, rather than hearing about or witnessing someone's success or good fortune and falling sway to that voice which so often arises in our minds that goes, Ooh, I'd be happier if you had a little bit less going for you. You know, like you don't have to lose everything, but... If the light could just dim a bit, you know, I would be happier in that case. Like, And one of the things I find, well, I find many things interesting about sympathetic joy. Uh, one is that we actually all do know the beauty of the quality because we know what it's like when we receive it or we don't. You know, that something really good happens for us and some people are so happy for us. And it feels so beautiful, whereas other people, it's like they may smile, or they may act like they're happy, but you really get the feeling they would be just fine if it fell apart <laughs> for you. you know, and it feels so awful. You know, so that's one interesting thing about it. Another interesting thing is that some people just have this trait so naturally, it seems. They're just like that. It gets so happy when something good happens for someone else and it's so great. Whereas for the rest of us, it's actually a training. It's a skills training. Because what we need to confront are many, many assumptions. And you know, we started out the retreat talking about that. Assumptions about permanence. You have everything and you will forever. It's never going to change. And I will never have anything, ever. Or assumptions about deprivation. Gina talked about this, you know, the feeling that happiness is a limited commodity in this world and the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for me. And this very strange assumption that we make, it's a little hard to describe, but it's almost like the prize or the accolade or the good fortune was floating around in the air and it was heading right at me and you got in the way and it landed on you and if it hadn't landed on you it definitely would have landed on me that's where it was going and you just popped up there like one of those annoying things in the computer and you grabbed it But really, you know, was it going to me, (laughs) you know? I mean, sometimes, of course, we are in direct competition with one another. We've both applied for the same job or the same grant. And if you get it, I don't. But a lot of times, it's not like that. You know, it wasn't heading right toward me. You didn't take something away from me. But we feel so, you know, so hurt and so, um, so deprived, so threatened by someone else's happiness and it's such a lonely existence you know because they get to be fewer and fewer and fewer people where we feel okay about what their situation is so people often ask you know is the development of sympathetic joy mean being kind of stupid you know and giving up your values and like maybe you witness somebody making a you know a lot of money by despoiling the earth are you supposed to be happy for them or you know they get a lot of power by hurting other people you're supposed to be happy for them and it's not really like that but it's more seeing that um, so many times what's blocking our happiness for the happiness of others is something in a way that's blocking our own happiness anyway it's those uh, feelings of competition those feelings of never having enough Um, that sense of permanence, or sometimes it's not having our value be primarily to be able to be happy for someone else. You know, they're not doing something that's actually harming anybody. They're not offending anybody. Maybe they're not living in the precise way we think they should be living, you know? And so we resent what's going on, but still, you know, what satisfaction ultimately does that give us? Sometimes I describe it in this way. It was once, I went to India one year in the early 90s and uh, visited different teachers, some Buddhist, some not Buddhist. And one of the people I was with on that trip uh, was a young man. And when we came back, he said to me, you know, I was thinking about uh, going to my father in California and taking him to India, you know, to go back to see uh, some of the teachers, particularly one teacher that we had visited. And he said to me, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, I'm not sure it's a really good idea like that, I mean India has so many beautiful places and that particular city is not one of them. And I said, I don't know if he's really gonna enjoy that spot in India and it's likely to be hot and maybe he'll get sick and he might not like the food and, and let's face it, you know, the scene around that guru, that teacher is really kind of strange and you know, he might be really offended and just turned off from spiritual life altogether and I don't think you should do it. So he didn't listen to me and he did it anyway. <laughs> He um, brought his father to meet this guru in India. So then I saw him later and, and I said, How was it? And he said, It was the best thing I've ever done in my entire life. He said, My father loved India. He loved everything about India. He loved the city. He loved the food. He loved the weather. <laughs> Not only did he love the guru, but he became a disciple of the guru. And not only did he become a disciple of the guru, he decided to spend the rest of his life becoming a teacher in the guru's lineage. So he was devoting the entire rest of his life to the service of the guru. And I stood there and I thought, oh. (laughs) I guess I was wrong. (laughs) But that's the kind of moment, like which do I care about more? I should have been right. I should have had a horrible time. They had no right to have a good time. Or, hey. May you be happy. I'm so glad you are happy. You know, those are the moments we relinquish control. And we can really enjoy the benefits of the success or the joy of somebody else. So the far enemy of sympathetic joy is, of course, envy or jealousy. The near enemy, as Gina described, is like this state of comparing where we're looking at the status or the situation of someone else, but not for the sake of having joy. Uh, for their good fortune. And then the last is equanimity. The last of the brahmaviharas is equanimity. Equanimity uh, is balance of mind. It's peace of mind. I think of it as the articulation of wisdom. This is how wisdom is expressed, is through that kind of balance. It's like perspective. And it's also said that Equanimity is what allows the other Brahma-viharas, first of all, to be boundless, you know, not to be limited to just those we like, and also keeps them from falling into their near enemy. So how does loving kindness keep from going into attachment? It's through balance, seeing we're not in control of someone else's choices, decisions, actions. How does compassion keep from falling into that kind of desolation and shatteredness and overwhelm? It's through balance. It's maybe a really big picture take on life, that it's not up to me to make it all better. It's not my universe to design. It's too bad, actually. You know? (laughs) Indifference doesn't mean giving up that knowledge. It is kind of too bad. but it's not it's just not that way equanimity is uh maybe not a very glamorous word you know for some tremendous perspective and spaciousness and openness it's really being able to see beyond what's happening in the moment to be able to admit how much we don't know so maybe we perform a very compassionate action or an action of generosity we give somebody something and at the time that we give it to them we offer it to them they don't seem awfully impressed with our action you know, they don't seem uh, overjoyed by our gift but what really we've done is it's like we've planted a seed in that moment and we actually don't know how it will unfold, where it will ripple out, how things will come to pass over time. You know, we tend to think that what we see in front of us is the end of the story, but it's not. So it's a kind of big sense of things. And how many times has that happened? It always happens to us. You know, we make an effort, we do the best we can, we come from the most loving place we can, we act as skillfully, as truthfully as we can, and we need to let go of the immediate effect, because we will never be entirely in control of that. The Buddha talked about it this way. He talked about the eight vicissitudes of life, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. There is pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame, and disrepute. He said, this is the fabric of life for everybody. It's not just a few. Everybody's life has all these ups and downs and changes, so many. It's the nature of things. And it doesn't mean that we don't all go through it. And it also doesn't mean that as we get to be very accomplished meditators that everything sort of flattens out and there are no more ups and downs, there are no more highs and lows. It's life. It's got to be like that. But we can be very different with it. It's like that fundamental question people often have about metta, like what does it mean to say, may I be happy? Shouldn't we just accept everything however it is? What's this happiness thing? You know, and here too, I think... um, That's maybe having a a fairly narrow sense of aspiration because we usually think of happiness as pleasure. So if what we're saying is, may I have pleasure, may I have pleasure, may I have pleasure, that is kind of a sorry way to spend a week because (laughs) it's not always going to be so, you know? (laughs) But happiness can mean something very different than that in the inevitable ups and downs and changes. It can mean not feeling so alone, not allowing other people to feel so alone in those changes. It can, be, it can mean not being so completely confused, you know, blaming ourselves so bitterly when we go down, when we don't get what we want, when things don't go well, and holding on so recklessly when we go up as though it was never going to change. Happiness can mean really having a profound understanding of the nature of life. And being able to take joy in the pleasure and deepen compassion in the pain to realize that we can and should and must do everything we can to relieve suffering. But at the same time, it's not up to us. You know, we can't decide. It's like 15 drops of Ganji's water a day, and then you're better. You know, it doesn't mean we don't try at all. But we need to try with wisdom, with understanding, with intelligence, with perspective. That's equanimity. Because we go up and we go down. And I always like to think of, you know, in in those eight vicissitudes of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and Praise and blame and fame and disrepute. I always like to think of the pleasure and pain leading um, to praise and blame. Because we can have any experience, and some people will respond with praise, and some people will respond with blame. You know, we may do something um, because it brings us happiness it brings us a kind of pleasure. Not even in a superficial or tawdry kind of way, but, you know, and people will react in one way or will react in another way. When uh, we were teaching a retreat just a few weeks ago here, a loving kindness retreat, and I was talking about um, when we first moved into the building all those years ago, and... uh, in addition to the conversation we had about whether we should have metta up on the front of the building we had a lot of conversations about whether we should have any buddhas in the building and the the dialogue was something like this you know when i had practiced and uh joseph had practiced in india it was within a context where the very first night of my first retreat, the teacher said, "The Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. This is not about becoming a Buddhist. This is, uh, you know, this kind of retreat is really about a very deep acquaintance with ourselves and our own capacity, and you know, all of that. So we thought, well, maybe we shouldn't have Buddhism. I mean, we're in the West, and it's kind of weird and." Uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't do it, And but on the other hand, you know, we had all been enriched by this tradition and the teachings that had been so personally important, the methods that had been so profoundly important were all cradled within this tradition. We had tremendous respect for the Buddha and for the lineage and, you know, for the sense of tradition, so maybe we should have Buddhas, but maybe we shouldn't have Buddhas, because after all, <laughs> you know, uh, we're not in Asia anymore, and we always have to explain it, and you're always explaining something, you know, and then, you know, so we went back and forth, and back and forth, and then um, one day, it's like this U-Haul arrived, and uh, it turned out that Jack Cornfield, who, before he'd been a monk in Thailand, had been in the Peace Corps in Thailand, was like a really big shopper, and he bought all these Buddhas, <laughs> and this entire U-Haul full of Buddhas arrived from his mother's attic, in Maryland. And it's like, all of a sudden we had all these Buddhas. So we thought, oh, we should put out the Buddhas. You know, so that's actually how it happened. And I told this story, you know, and and then I went um, to the room where I was doing interviews and within 30 minutes I had these two responses. I actually think you should get rid of the Buddhas. You know, I, I find it very difficult, you know, that you know, the message is that it's really not about uh, becoming a Buddhist and yet you have these Buddhas. You know, I really think you should think seriously about that. And then uh, I think then there was one other person and the next person who came in and said, I'm so glad you put on those Buddhas. It means so much to me, you know, that you, you have those Buddhas. And I thought, well, that didn't take long, did it? You know? Sometimes it doesn't take 30 minutes, sometimes there's no person intervening in between. You know, we get praise, we get blame. It's inevitable. That's in the nature of life. And I would never say that um, we don't care how people respond to our offering, to our effort, to whatever we do, whatever we say. Of course we care. But the question is, can we care with some wisdom? You know, how much do we care? Do we feel completely identified with how someone is reacting to us in the moment? Or do we have a different sense of integrity? About our action? Do we get devastated when we get blamed, even though praise is also happening? You know, can we have that really big understanding that there's always praise, there's always blame, there's always pleasure and pain? It's just the nature of things. And so, equanimity, which is that perspective, it's that incredible spaciousness and clarity from wisdom helps loving kindness be loving kindness because it doesn't fall into attachment it actually helps compassion be sustained because we don't get into that other kind of control thing you know we also don't get so completely devastated it's not that it doesn't hurt or we don't feel the exaltation of of the praise or the pleasure but it's all happening in a really big space that's not vapid or cold, but is really very beautiful. It's because we know. So the example sometimes used in Tibetan Buddhist tradition in terms of meditation, it's not um, so much about life, but we can extrapolate that, is that uh, you should relate to your thought, the thoughts and feelings that come up in your mind as though you were quite an elderly person sitting in a playground watching children play. And I've always loved that illustration because I think it combines many things. You know, it's like you've lived a life, you've seen lots of ups and downs, you've really seen the nature of things. And there you are in this playground, and this kid's like completely freaking out because they broke a shovel. (laughs) And you're kind, you're tender, you care. You don't go up and say, hey, kid, it's just a shovel. You know, you should wait until you really have a problem. You know, like, it's not like that. There's so much caring, but you don't freak out. You know, you don't like fall on the ground sobbing. You know, it's just a shovel also. That everything changes all of the time. That we're not in control of the unfolding of events. There's some spaciousness there. And I think honestly, when any one of us is seeking help, that's really what we want. I mean, if we go to somebody and they completely freak out of our, of our, our situation, it's kind of frightening, isn't it? Like, oh, <laughs> you know, I'm really in a bad way. You know. <laughs> but we also don't want coldness and distance, like, what do you care, you know, there's nothing. So that incredible blend of the really big space of equanimity and the tenderness, the care of compassion is both what we seek as human beings to help us go on, and it's what we offer in the end. So the far enemy of equanimity is reactivity. It's attachment and aversion, holding on and pushing away. And the near enemy is indifference. It's not meant in any way to be indifference, although of course it's so confusing for us, just the words and you know uh, a more uh, distant sense of the quality rather than the lived sense of the quality. So equanimity is not indifference, and I'll leave you just with one last story about my goddaughter, which um, I uh, also use sometimes to, to try to evoke this sense. So when she was um, about nine years old, she started sending me these emails through her mother. She'd dictate. Her mother would type them out. So this was the first email that I got. Now, I became her godmother because she asked me to, well, she told her mother I was her godmother when she was about four years old. She said, well, Sharon's my godmother. And Her mother said, well, you know, you have to ask. (laughs) So they asked me, and I said, yeah, you know, that would be incredible. I would love to be her godmother. So over the years, you know, we developed a relationship. So she was about nine years old, and and she started sending me these emails. So this was the first email. I've been thinking about things, and I wonder if you can help me out. Where did the universe come from? (laughs) Uh, Where did space come from? Where did love come from? And do love and space have anything to do with one another? Please tell me everything you know. So I thought, oh my God, you know. Like, uh, but fortunately, there is a quotation from the Buddha about love and space, which is develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. So that you know if somebody was standing here in the middle of the room throwing paint around in the air, there's nowhere in the space for the paint to land. So in the end, it's not going to matter if it was a very well-chosen color or a really garish mistake. The space isn't going to be ruined by that paint. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. She cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. So I wrote something like that to her. I said, well, you know, the Buddha said this thing about love and space. and, And I said, you know, it's kind of like this. It's like, say somebody says something to you at school that really hurts your feelings. And you can relate to that hurt in a couple of different ways. One is you can have like a really, really, really big heart, a really big mind and sure you feel the hurt but it's in the context of like this really big space like the sky or you can be like a sponge and every element of that hurt can just like seep into you and fill you and fill every cell in your body and every element of your being and you get all like soggy and yucky and completely undone by that hurt so i said it's kind of like that so i typed all that out i didn't hear from her In response Um, and then about a month or so later her mother said to me that um, she'd gotten into an argument with her little sister and subsequent to the argument my goddaughter was going around the house muttering I am like the sky I am NOT a sponge (laughs) (laughs) I am like the sky I am NOT a sponge (laughs) And since I had never had any children, I wasn't all that sure about that. I didn't know, but her mother was extremely happy about that. She said, oh, she's working it, you know, she's making it real. So I offer that to you since, uh, you know, we have talked and we'll talk certainly more tomorrow about the development of qualities like equanimity through mindfulness, um, through the loving kindness, through wisdom. But... Uh, you also have a mantra if you want. You can just keep saying, I'm like this <laughs> guy. I am not a sponge. And see what happens. Okay, let's sit together for just a minute.